493 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam for the introduction before I get to uh, the interview that Jill and I did today with Anne Helen Peterson. I uh, can't wait for you to take a listen to that. Anne, uh, for a long time, was a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed uh, until earlier this year when she began writing her own newsletter, which you can get at uh, Substack. You can go to annhelen.substack.com if you want to subscribe to her newsletter. Highly recommend that you do. Uh, she's an extremely prolific journalist and writer um, who just has her kind of her finger on the pulse of culture and our society and the way that we're all feeling about things more than just about any other writer that I can think of. Uh, a few years back, she wrote The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Women, which was amazing. Joe and I are both big fans of that. Uh, and the book that we talk about a lot today in our conversation is called Can't Even. Uh, and it's all about how the millennial generation became uh, completely burnt out by the amount of work that we do and the multiple jobs and all the stresses and everything. And just, it's a really deep dive into where um, the generation known as millennials that people like to joke around and think of as like teenagers, but in reality, the oldest millennials you know, are close to 40 and starting families and um, how our generation came to have the mindset that we did. And we didn't really, for this conversation, we didn't really think, like we didn't really prepare a whole bunch of questions just because with this coming out the week of the United States election and um, this book feeling very timely with where the mental state of all of us are in the country, we just wanted to have a conversation. And I think it was really, really delightful. So I think you're gonna enjoy it. Um, it it's funny, but serious. And we talk about mental health and how we all deal with anxiety and stress and just lots of great stuff. You're going to love this. I can't wait for you to take a listen. If you want to get a hold of us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. There you'll find links to all of our uh, previous episodes and all sorts of good stuff. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, also, if you haven't done so yet, we'd love it if you leave us a quick five-star rating and a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We much appreciate that. Um, and then also today kicks off the Big Library Read. So if you go to biglibraryread.com, you can borrow Reverie by Ryan Lasala, and you can join the discussion board. And then you can sign up for our event that we're doing Friday next week. That will be a whole lot of fun. Um, okay, I think that's all the housekeeping. I know there's a lot going around, around here lately we've been telling you about. But before we get to anything else, I'm just really, really excited for you to hear this conversation with Anne Helen Peterson on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Adam and Jill, and we are really, really I guess excited is a tough word to use in this moment because who's ever truly excited about any moment in, in real normal life here. But we're really jazzed to be joined by Anne Helen Peterson, who you might know from her years and years as one of the 
best and most frequent uh, reporters for BuzzFeed. Uh, she is also an author of several incredible titles. The one that we're going to focus on right now, which just recently came out and is extremely prescient, is called Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Nation, which all three of us, I feel, are very comfortable talking about since it's our, our generation. Uh, we're going to get into all that and we'll just see where we go. So first off, Anne, thank you for joining us today. My total pleasure. So, um, yeah, I was just, it's funny. I, we can see each other on Zoom and like Joe and I are just staring at each other like, who's going to start talking first? Um, <laughs> do you want to kind of kick us off by explaining the book to, to our listeners so they have an idea of where this conversation is going to start? Yeah, from? yeah. So it started as an essay that I wrote in January 2019. That was really the culmination of me like burning out really hard and, and not recognizing it as burnout because like my understanding of burnout was that it was like when you collapse, right? Like then you're working so hard that you really collapse and that then you have to like quit your job and like go into the mountains for a year and then come back to the world. And it was something that I thought like doctors got or foreign correspondents, you know, people in incredibly uh, stress, like what we recognize as very explicitly stressful situations succumb to. And so over the course of that essay, I think I really tried to figure out what burnout looks like for millennials, which is mostly just like this background of precarity and instability and how our response to that instability um, has been to just work all the time. And some of that is like forcing yourself to work. Like if you're on a salary job, just like filling work into every crevice of your life in order to distinguish yourself in some way. And some of that is like trying to find three jobs plus like another side job to just keep above water. Um, and that essay did well and I think resonated with a lot of people and it was easy to translate it into a book just in terms of I went a lot deeper both vertically in terms of like I, I went historically like looked at a ton of economic history child rearing history sociological history like trying to figure out what was going on in the United States especially with our parents generation with boomers and then what happened over the course of the 80s and 90s while millennials were growing up to basically <laughs> uh, prime us for burnout like what was how was our path set for us? And then also I wanted to expand it horizontally in terms of really trying to get far more than just my like white middle-class experience. So I talked to hundreds of millennials about how burnout accumulated differently according to location, race, class, immigration status, like all of these different components of identity that really textured how burnout works in your life. Um, and so the book begins with like our burnt out parents and then travels through how work got shitty, how work stays shitty, uh, how we arrived at the point that we have no hobbies and then ends at uh, millennials and parenting. Because that's something, you know, like there's all these jokes about like, oh, millennials, like people just use millennial as like a derogatory term to describe like teens. And the oldest millennials are 39, right? Like millennials have kids and are dealing with stresses. And so trying to, to think through some of the ways that becoming parents during this time has just really felt relentless 
Um, and the book, I finished it before COVID and it was in final copy edits and then COVID hits and my editor was like, do you want to do anything? <laughs> I guess I'll write, you know, I wanted to acknowledge COVID in some way. And I wrote a foreword that essentially says like everything that I talking about in this book, is just worse now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? Like COVID just has made everything worse. <laughs> It's yeah, it's so true. It I, is. You said like no. six hundred things. I'll talk about. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. No, I was just gonna say. Um, yeah, speaking about this whole like millennial as this like catch-all phrase for young people, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna be like 39, so I'm not entirely sure that fits. But yeah, COVID has it has definitely created this like extra layer of. It's hard to separate yourself from work even harder now um which I was not anticipating <laughs> yeah I think you know and this this is a good uh transition my current book project because I can't stop working uh is about <laughs> with my partner uh, who is a tech columnist for the New York Times we are working on a book about working from home and how like all of the crappy things about work could so easily just get worse mm -hmm. with working from home in terms of the ways in which work spills over into these other parts of our lives, but also how we can think of work from home as a way to maybe, just maybe decenter work from our lives, right? Like to, to kind of excavate a place, a non-work self and a non-work space uh, in the post-COVID times. And it's, it's been an interesting kind of experiment in terms of like, I oscillate between like, oh, work from home is going to screw us all or work from home might be something if we, if we do it deliberately, that could be really liberatory. Well, and it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's almost like a psychological thing. We're like, so for my, I live in a town home and the main living area in this house is uh, my living room my like kitchen and then we're in theory we would eat dinner but where we eat dinner now is also where we work and so right. at any given time during the day I can see my laptop and yep. so it's like I'll be cooking dinner and I can see it and if I like god forbid I have the sound turned on and I get an email or a slack message and I go over and I look at it and or if I'm sitting on the couch in like the one minute of the day that I consider trying to relax which like I told Jill reading your book I was just like nodding my head in agreement like yeah I feel all oh my god she's like in my brain <laughs> like I just see my computer and I start to feel guilty of like because we we know that we're very privileged in the sense that we work for a digital company we're providing ebooks and audiobooks for people to be able to enjoy while they're safely at home like if there's ever been a company that was ready to help people during this time. It's ours. So we've had so many less stresses than other people, but at the same time, it creates this psychology of being like, okay, well, I'm fortunate to have a stable job right now because of the situation. So I always need to be working and it has, it's been, I will freely admit, I have no work life separation whatsoever now. Yeah. Well, and I think this is something, and I try to get to this a bit in the book, right? Is I think that oftentimes white middle-class people tread this difficult line of like, we, we need to absolutely like always be cognizant of the ways that like, oh, you know, all of these problems that we have and all of these like burnout situ situations that we're talking about in the book, we can throw money at them, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like as psychologically taxing as all of this has been, we've been able to work from home and not have to bear the psychological burden of like every day, am I going to get COVID? Am I going to expose someone? Am I going to kill my grandma? Like Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. But also how do you keep that in mind? Well, admitting and being honest with yourself and others about how hard it is. Right. Like there's this incrementalism that I think happens. And like, I talk about this a little bit explicitly in the parenting chapter where a lot of times moms are like, well, my husband does more than this husband, so I can't complain. Mm. Right. Or I've been able to keep my job, so I can't complain. But what that does is that it prevents us from like seeing how there are similarities between all of the things that suck, right? Like you can acknowledge the the fine gradations and, and how different mm-hmm. the struggles are while also being like, we're in this together. And only by us, like all taking our anger at how things are, putting that into like one big cauldron, like that's mm-hmm. how it's going to bubble over and we're actually going to change. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I. I think also, and maybe this this might be like an internal thing for just me, or if this might be, I think it's like a combination of like the millennial aspect, like you said, like always needing to feel like we're working and also with everything going on at COVID. It's like, I feel like I've lost my capability to celebrate any victories whatsoever. Like I, um, like last week, our podcast, they're going to, speaking of BuzzFeed, we used to work, like we were mentioned as like, you know, one of their favorite literary podcasts. And like, I saw that and I sent it to Jill and we were both like, Woo. like literally gave it like four seconds of thought and I sent right. it to our director and then right. I moved on with my life and I was like that was a cool thing or like seeing like all the I just I feel like I've lost my complete ability to feel like we deserve to celebrate mm-hmm. anything and I think it's a combination of a working millennial during the pandemic when it's just like well if I celebrate this thing for more than a minute then the next thing I'm supposed to be working on isn't going to get done Right. Well, and you're only as good as the last thing that you've done. Right. 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 Like you can't write on your laurels in any way. Like that is not acceptable. I also think you know, the, the inability to feel any sort of achievement or catharsis is such a symptom of burnout. Like it is a thing that you are just trying to get through one item on your to-do list after another. And that includes, you know, everything from a birthday to like taking out the trash, like everything just flattens. Mm-hmm. And so there's no peaks and there's no valleys. And I often think back to college of like that feeling of studying so hard for your final exam or your final paper or whatever. And you would work so hard leading up to finals and like leave it all on the table, right? Like you would just do everything that you could and you would exhaust yourself. And then it would be over, right? You would go home and I always got sick because I was like letting down my guard, you know? And and even if like I would always babysit or like do odd jobs at home, I wasn't doing that intellectual work. I had a real and actual recovery and a real catharsis that prepared me to re-enter with the new semester. Like I would be so excited for the new mm-hmm. semester. But like life is life and work is so relentless and so overwhelming that there is no there is no place in our days, let alone like even a weekend. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what how is a weekend different than the rest of my days these days, right? Yeah, I remember something I've struggled with, and I still struggle with, and I don't 
it's probably a combination of like burnout, but also anxiety, which is also tied in. But I get to work on Mondays and I feel like I have to do everything for the entire week in like the first hour of the day because <laughs> I don't know like what is going to come down. There's just this like sense of urgency of having to get stuff done because there's always going to be something else. And there's just, it feels like there's no end in sight which is not true. That's not always what my workday looks like, but it, there's that sense of needing to be prepared because I always like, there could be another whatever around the corner that just throws everything up in upheaval. Well, and that's a very millennial stance is like, Oh, the shit's going to hit the fan at any second. (laughs) And because it did, you know, we graduated from high school or for, from college directly into, or into the aftermath of the great recession. Like things have been shit for a long time. And we were just gaining stability as a generation as COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So like for most millennials, I know they were like, Oh, of course. Right. Like just as I was starting to feel solid in some way in my job, in my role as a parent or a partner, in my like financial cushion that we're all supposed to somehow accumulate, paying off my student debts, whatever, it all falls apart. And so we, I think our work and our our work ethic is really designed to kind of create a cushion. Or the other thing that I found myself using all the time when I was describing what happened, how I like left academia to to start writing for Buzzfeed is I always used to say I was building myself a life raft while I was in academia by writing online for very little money. But I was essentially like subconsciously figuring out a different strategy for when everything fell apart. Mm -hmm. And like that, (laughs) if you're always looking for a job or thinking about what you're going to do, if your job goes away, next week that's it's a really psychologically taxing um stance to take and it's i think it's difficult for people who are salaried and are accustomed to like oh companies lay people off all the time and disappear and it's just as as arduous in a different way for people who are like working retail jobs and are like what's my schedule going to be next week i have no idea it's set differently every week is my store going to close because of COVID? Like, am I going to have an income? You know, that sort of inability to make any sort of short-term plans takes its toll. I'm curious, and this is kind of actually for both of you. I'm curious for both of you guys' thoughts on this. So something I've noticed really throughout like all of working, but especially in this past year is like the things that I, find passion in I, I feel like all three of us are probably very fortunate like I know one of my big passions is literature and reading and writing I work at a company that is involved with that Jill as well and I know that you obviously have a passion for writing and and, and, and you know co- commenting on culture and society since that's what you've been doing this whole time but what I've found now is like people who have listened to the podcast for a while know that like Jill and I have other jobs this is not like our job it's not our job description we just happen to be doing this in addition to it and we're like, I can't remember the last time I picked up a book that wasn't for the podcast. And like, we're fortunate we kind of get to pick and choose who we talk to. So I'm very interested in the books I read still. But like, I can't remember the last time I've picked up a book where I'm like, I'm just going to read this in, in bed tonight because I want to read X, Y, or Z. Or like, it's so rare for me to write like a short story just to write it because I feel like I should be working on like the book that I'm trying to write. And I'm curious for you too. Like, I know, Jill, you are working on your third and fourth books. And, and you just said you're working on 
your your next book like are you either of you able to find enjoyment in the things that you enjoy or do you feel like you you need to be doing it working towards a goal as opposed to just purely enjoying it Mm. I mean part of this has to do with the very millennial tendency to uh turn what you like doing into your job (laughs) (laughs) right again we were we were uh inundated with that idea you know do what you love and you'll never work another day for the rest of your life which my chapter in the book is do what you love and you'll work every day for the rest of your life (laughs) Uh, and I think that oftentimes you know we we are lucky ones that we have been able to to take what we love and turn it into something that is full-time employment. Whereas lots of people with that maxim in mind struggle to find anything approximating, you know, stable employment. They're like, oh, of course I should get paid crap for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the happiest people that I've talked to are one in terms of like finding time for things that they love and that sort of thing is ones who tried, who went down that road for a while, found that it didn't work found a job like a J-O-B job that is just nine to five. Mm -hmm. And now they do the thing that they actually love on the side. Yeah. And sometimes they do it for pay and sometimes they don't, but it is definitely on the side. That, yeah. I always say that um, even if I were to like magically become some like huge bestseller, I need the, well, I think there's, I need to have a job both for structure and stability because of that millennial thing of being like, I like health insurance. I like having a steady paycheck. Things might happen. <laughs> so I need a job, but yeah, I, I do it on the side and I, um, I'm very good about setting boundaries of like, this is my work time and this is not my work time. And that's just sort of a personality thing, I think. Um, and but yeah, everything I do for writing wise is like on the side. Although admittedly in the middle of the pandemic, it's been a struggle, I think for a lot of creatives and some people have been able to create through it and I have not, but I sort of have to now. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it, it's a challenge. It's yeah. a challenge, but it's definitely I mean, a side the- thing. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is what stability allows to flourish, mm-hmm. right? It allows you to flourish as a parent. It allows you to flourish as a creative. It allows you to flourish as a member of your community because you are not constantly just worried about treading, like keeping yourself and your immediate circle, mm-hmm. your heads above water. Um, and so obviously COVID has, has rendered so many things unstable, but even before that, and the big thing about the book is like the art, the structure of American society right now is just fundamentally unstable for the vast majority of people. And so all of the things that we're doing, all of these coping strategies from overwork to phone addiction, like there's just so many things that over parenting and like obsession with parenting, they are all reactions to that instability. And sometimes those reactions are really freaking dark and like racist and xenophobic and, and really prop up pretty horrible understandings of, of what the family should be, what, what we should be as a country. But I think more and more people are really reacting in a way that's like, this is unsustainable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we cannot keep doing this. Something has to give. I'm so mad. And, and I'm grateful 
which is the wrong word. I am, the one thing about the pandemic that is useful is that I think it is really consolidating that rage in a way that I think we can point it towards something. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And it's almost like, I feel like I have, if I find a thing that somewhat reduces that rage in my body for a little bit, and this all gets back to like being a millennial, I feel like I have to justify even that minute, like that bit of enjoyment. I'm like, um, I really like that David Letterman show on Netflix, like my next guest needs no needs introduction, I think it's called. And like, in my, my mind, my justification is like, well, I'll watch this and I'll enjoy it for 40 minutes. I'll watch him talk to Dave Chappelle but I'm going to pay attention to how he does his interviewing because I can't, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. deserve to be happy for 40 minutes. I have to be like, so how, classic. <laughs> it's awful. And like, and I know it. And then I, I don't know. I, and then I even get like the, the subtle, like not needling, but like it comes from a good place. Like my mom, I, I am a pretty good cook and I definitely lately because I have nothing else to do I'll like plate the food a nice way and then I'll take a picture and my mom will be like you should try to make a, a cookbook I'm like can I just enjoy this one thing and like she it's coming from a good place but it is it's like because of this pent-up rage and everything that we're all feeling I feel like I have to justi justify even like a modicum of happiness mm. that I can enjoy during a day yeah well and that's the simple before we started taping we were talking about listening to audiobooks and I had a real problem before I like understood how my burnout worked with like always wanting to fill every space with a podcast mm -hmm. be like oh I'm, I'm making dinner podcast I'm listening to, I'm doing laundry podcast I'm taking the dogs for a walk I should be listening to a podcast and they were all like informative it's like the weeds from Vox, which is like the most wonky podcast, you know, stuff like that, um, that I thought was edifying me in some way. I really felt like I had to be spending that time in a way that would be like contributing to, to myself and to my ability to talk to others and, and to my job and not giving myself any space, like giving my, my mind to just like hang out with itself mm -hmm. is the phrase I always use. And so like I, one shift I've made is to be very okay with like, I only listen to one podcast and it's very sporadic. <laughs> you know, like I just like, I, I am no longer trying to keep up with the podcast rat race. I'm also no longer trying to keep up with the watch everything that you're supposed to be watching, mm. right? which like you, it used to be more of an imperative that I did because I was writing much more cultural, like straight up kind of like television film criticism, but I just gave up. And it feels very liberating. I I feel like I get that when I tell people that we host a podcast, but like as in the book version, they're like, oh, well, tell me your favorite book from the past month. It's like the when someone tells you that they're a comedian and it's like, tell me a joke. And like, I am very bad at that when it comes to books. Like I try to at least like be up to speed on everything so I can appease these people. But it is really, really hard. I'm like you, I, I definitely have headphones in at all times, if I'm running, if I'm walking the dogs, if I'm cooking and I'm usually listening to an audiobook in my mind, I'm like, I need to fill this space with mm -hmm. something productive. I, I'm telling you, your book was eye-opening. It like, made me actually like, <laughs> it was like going to therapy with your book. I was like, oh my God, and sees into my spirit. So, so many people have told me that they, the article or the book that they sent it to their therapists and their therapists were like, every other millennial that I see also sent me that. <laughs> 
And I, I really, I think it's great that people are talking about it with their therapist because a lot of this, a lot of these are problems that I think probably they were talking about in some way and they, they just need more language to, to talk about and therapy can be solvable that, for that. But like one of the critiques of the book is that like, if you're feeling this, you just need more therapy. And that is, first of all, that's such a, such a personal solution that I just fundamentally disagree with. I also come from a place where in North Idaho, where like therapy is just not available to people. Like, you know, my mom has been on a, a waiting list to see a therapist for like three months. And then she gets to see that person once every, like every couple of months, it's not the same sort of like, so it can be a financial barrier and just an access barrier in so many ways. So to say like, oh, the way to fix millennial burnout is to like have everyone go see a therapist. I'm like, therapy is a great tool, but it is, it is not the solution ultimately. Right. And it sort of like misses that again, like it's an access thing, whether it is financial or it is just geographical or whatever, that being able to go to therapy on a regular basis is definitely something that comes from a place of privilege. And a lot of millennials just don't have that option. And so that sort of misses kind of to like suggest that, like, I don't think you understood what you were reading. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and some people are really good at at not feeling the stuff that we feel. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm so happy for them that like, they can set those boundaries better that their relationship with their Instagram account is not the same as my relationship with my Instagram account, you know, like that they have not internalized some of those ideas. Everyone, everyone is different. And, and I don't think every millennial necessarily feels that way, but enough of us do that it's worth talking about. I'm so jealous of those people. (laughs) Like like, I've been able to detach myself from Facebook, at least that's like one. But then my issue is like for our job, Again, right. Jill and I are both in marketing and we host a podcast. And right. so we do social media. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to look at the Professional Book Nerds podcast Twitter real quick. But then my little icon for my personal one is right there. And I'm like, well, let me just see what's going on in the world. And I'm angry. Like, it's just like, and then I'm just <laughs> doom scrolling. Yeah. And like, I can feel myself. It's horrible. It, it'll be like, two in the morning when I'm, I'm awake again with a dog or just insomnia and I'm scrolling through and I can like in my brain I can feel my like internal monologuing like shut your damn phone off not only is the doom scrolling bad but the blue light is bad for you and you're just keeping yep. yourself awake and I'm like good point internal self <laughs> but let me just refresh one more time and see if something horrible has happened yeah well, and that's the thing that you know we're smart people we know how we know what's happening you can see it. Mm-hmm. I sometimes when I'm having like burnout behaviors, like what you were just describing is what I think of as a burnout behavior. Oh, yeah. I, my, my like biggest burnout behavior at the beginning of the pandemic was I was just like so obsessed with this dumb candy crush knockoff that was like not satisfying in any way, but I could not freaking <laughs> shake it. It was just like, want to play this so bad can't read can't do anything but look at COVID numbers and play this game uh, but I was like oh this is a burnout behavior and it just like you can acknowledge it for what it is and I try not to like get mad at myself I'm like okay so here is what's going on but I have a, I have another question because of our timing and because of what I'm thinking about right now but I feel like I've tried to keep everything at an even keel and like 
everything's kind of falling apart. And I think that it is the week before the election. I think like just everyone like has been holding so much tension Mm -hmm. that it's overflowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I, there is, um, I think the person who like said it best, there's, uh, his name's David Roth. He writes for a uh, defector and he's like, mm. he's been a freelance writer. He, I think he writes about Trump, like as on point as anyone in the country. And he co-hosts their podcast called the defector podcast, very creative naming. And like their podcast last week, his co-host like, Hey Roth, how's it going? And he's like, Oh, it's, everything's terrible, but it's fine. And like the way he just said that, and then they moved on. Yep. I was like, that's every one of us that's being like okay. every it's the, it's fine meme with the fire around yeah. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep so i don't know i i definitely know that that's adding stress for people who are listening to this we're recording it a week early you will hear this on monday the day before the election a super chill time to listen to a podcast <laughs> but i don't know joe what do you think are you stressed now we're always stressed oh i'm always stressed we had this conversation like way back in march where i was yeah. like oh as someone who is always anxious and always is waiting for like the bottom to drop out this is just like another thing mm-hmm. um and i have learned over several years that i react to trauma in a very different way than other people do in that i will freak out about really little minimal stuff but very traumatic things i have like it's not that I don't have any reaction, but I really don't have any reaction um, as like a defense mechanism. I'm in therapy. So, you know, whatever, working through it. But um, yes, this week in particular has been very difficult. And I think it's the struggle of, um, you know, like I made some joke to Adam and then also other people are like, can we just like not work on the third? Like no one's going to be able to focus. Even though you are well aware, you're not going to have any numbers or anything mm-hmm until eight o'clock at night but there's still that that anticipation and that anxious anticipation all day long and it feels like it's going to be a week of that and so you're in this place of knowing that it's coming not knowing what's gonna happen which increases your anxiety and anticipation but also in the back of your mind you're like I can't check out of life because I have stuff to do and like I have a job that I have to do um yeah the next seven days are just going to be fucking awful (laughs) and I think that this is one of many times where I I uh wish that my job like actually took me away from the 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 Mm -hmm. site where Mm -hmm. all of this news is coming in right like if my job right now was to take care of my lawn for the next week right? Like I would be staring at the leaves on the ground instead of like trying to write a piece with TweetDeck in the next thing over, yeah. you know? And someone's like, close TweetDeck. And I'm like, yeah, I close it. And then I open it again in like yeah. five minutes. Um, and it, it is that feeling of like, there's no news, but you just need news, mm-hmm. right? That tension holding that there. And, and I think that the, the psychological cost of that like I'm feeling it in my body like I I feel like my body is kind of falling apart Mm -hmm. I literally am looking at my heart rate right now just discussing it and it's going up I can see it on my watch which is also not helpful to be like oh look I'm panicking (laughs) and the thing is is like I don't know I used to I played baseball in college and I would always be really nervous until the game started but then once the game started playing like once you started playing it you could 
you were I was more nervous like if I was on the bench watching our defense play because I couldn't do anything to help it and so I know that even leading up to it on Tuesday I'm going to not only like throughout the day is going to be horrible I know I'm going to be sitting there on on Tuesday and like listen we're all talking about how stressed and how maybe it's not the best practice I'm gonna have a bottle of whiskey next to me and a glass of minimal ice because I don't want to <laughs> even like weaken I want it to hurt and I'm going to be watching Wolf Blitzer and his team pull up those damn little counties and be like, look at here in Tuscarora. And I'll be like, shit, Tuscarora, we're in trouble. And like, <laughs> I'm not going to have anything to do. And it's going to be five or six hours of that. Right. And like, I think my, definitely my defense mechanism is to do exactly what I'm doing right now, which is make jokes. That's always been my, like, yeah. how I avoid serious situations like I'll be talking about like my mental health or like my physical health with someone and they'll ask me a serious question and I will just crack a joke and they'll stare at me and be like but please answer the question also (laughs) no well and my coping mechanism is always to like write about it so it's just like doing more work uh I mean the other thing too and this this is part of our burnout conversation is that I think most people know that it's not going to necessarily be the catharsis that we want it to be right like even if even if that like we get through election day, there's still going to be so much shit on the other side. Oh yeah. You know, like, it's not going to be like, wow, it's over. Like COVID's still here, you know, like <laughs> somebody, we do a, a team, our communications team at overdrive. We do a month, a Monday meeting of like, basically just so all nine or 10 of us can say hi and like talk about nothing, but the dumb movies we watched on the weekend mm-hmm. or what show our coworker watched on CBS All Access, which he loves to talk about. And <laughs> one of the people on our team was like, I just can't wait to get to this year over, like this year done with. And there was a pause. And somebody on our team was like, I just seem to confirm, you know, COVID's not just going away on the 31st. And like everyone started laughing. It's like, cause you're right. It's, and I think that's the, I hope people who read your book aren't looking for like a cathartic answer at the end, because it's like, you're going to feel this. You're going to keep feeling this. Yeah. <sighs> but I do think maybe just to encourage people to. Oh, definitely read it. Yeah. Read or listen to the book. Like it. Don't read this book. It's off the word. Giving shape to that exhaustion. Yeah. Like having language to describe it is so valuable. It, and it does feel cathartic in a different sort of way, right? Yeah, let me give my like unrequited read this book. It's so freaking good. <laughs> it's like, I mean, to make sure I'm clear on that. Um, <laughs> I just don't want people to come like tweeting at you to be like, I'm stressed, I, what's my answer? And you're supposed to know the answer to this. Well, know? I mean, here's the thing. Like that's the the bad, I don't read my Goodreads reviews because like you're just like, why would you do that to yourself? But um, the, the people who have been like angry about their, or the initial article or, or the book, like it is like, I thought I was getting like tips, right? Like top 10 buzzfeed tips on how to right (laughs) or angry boomers um or resentful gen xers who feel like they're not seen but like the thing that i try to do with the book is show that like you know to be a millennial in some ways it's it's a state of mind like you can be a gen xer and have like the millennial mindset that we've Mm -hmm. been describing here Mm -hmm. that accompanies precarity and I think actually a lot of millennials uh, attitude towards the world around them are actually probably most similar depending on when your country, your family came to this country, but, or like most similar to 
our grandparents' generation who had to live through the depression and then World War II and were really shaped by continuous precarity. Mm. Um, they did get to live out their last years in like the golden age of American capitalism. So maybe that's coming for us too. We'll see. I just think about um, like my parents were alive during like they were they're still alive, but like during the Vietnam era, like my parents were at Kent State at like oh. they were students there at the sh- like during the shootings and everything and like but i keep thinking i had a conversation with my mom about like she said she's like their time was a lot of unknown and upheaval and everything but like they there was a definitive thing they were all kind of rallying against and mm-hmm. so there was you know like protest songs and protest books and protest art i'm just sitting here i'm like okay the pandemic is kind of bringing us all together and like covid but like i i've i've listened to some music that is like has been created in this time it's like there's no like protest song that i can think of that's like definitive for our moment right now because you'd be protesting like everything (laughs) there's a new thing that happens every day where you're like well that's the biggest story of the year if this was a normal year well and the other thing and this is pointed out in a couple of different histories but the one book that i find so valuable that's looking at that period and, and boomers coming up during that period is barbara ehrenreich's fear of falling And she points out that one of the reasons that people like boomers, young boomers were able to really rebel and push back during that time was because there was a a, a fair amount of security, Mm -hmm. right? Like there, there were jobs. And so people felt like, oh, I could drop out of society and just go protest for two years. And then I could still find a job, especially if you have a college education. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's one of the things that, uh, we're beginning to understand is like part of the reason that like there hadn't been this coherent response to like what happened in the, the aftermath of the great recession is people were just so like they were just scrambling and it wasn't until Trump came along and forced a response in some capacity no matter what your situation was that we really have arrived at this mm-hmm. this point of like progressive pushback yeah um we'll kind of end here but I'm curious I've normally we end with like what do you hope readers take away from the book but we kind of been talking about that for 15 minutes um so but I want to know I'm curious and I I hope the answer is yes have you been able to read anything fiction I saw like yeah totally totally um I it I kind of goes like month to month it's a little different so like I'll go a month where I haven't been able to read anything and then I'll kind of re-immerse myself and get back into something. My recommendation is actually going to be Liz Moore's Long Bright River. So good. Uh, which if you like Tana French and like that style of thriller, I think that like quasi genre fiction is just incredibly useful in this moment. <laughs> um, I, I love quote unquote literary fiction, but it is sometimes just a little bit harder to to really envelop yourself. But like the pleasure of really just being sucked into a book and like having the structure be one that would pull me along with it, despite all of my desires to go check Twitter or whatever, like that was just, it was really mm-hmm. beautiful, even though the story is, is pretty bleak, but just wonderfully told. Um, she, I think, I cannot wait to see what she does next. So, 
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.